So um, Mark chapter 2, Jesus uh, has uh, begun his uh, earthly uh, ministry and um, he's, uh, you know, immediately being met with, uh, you know, popularity as he's, you know, cleansing lepers and um, uh, causing people uh, to be made whole and to be made well. And so uh, you go from that place of uh, the introduction of Jesus um, and then uh, the popularity begins to grow and that becomes the the second uh, sort of phase of Jesus' ministry is the popularity. And then the third phase uh, much later in Jesus' ministry becomes the persecution of Jesus. So uh, presently we're in that growing uh, popularity. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 2, guys. Uh, chapter 2, verse 13 is where we're going to pick up. So it says, Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. Notice that again, right? I, I, I dwell on that uh, Calvary Chapel very much about teaching the Word of God verse by verse from Genesis to Revelation. And, uh, you know, we kind of got a particular hang-up on uh, this uh, issue, and I know it's our particular uh, hang-up, but Jesus' ministry was indeed a teaching ministry. It, it was, there were, sure, there are miracles, you know, amazing, astounding miracles going on at the hand of God, but uh, always teaching. You know, and we, we talked last week about how he makes the statement of, I'm going to have to leave here, and I need to go over there because I need to teach them. And I'm going to leave here. I'm going to go over there to teach. And I'm going to leave here and go over there to teach, to teach. Teaching is always his central point. And you see that uh, right here. You know, he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Um, A few things about Levi, uh, Matthew is uh, that he he was of the tribe of Levi. Uh, we assume, you know, very safely. Uh, n- no one from the tribe of Dan would name their son Levi. Uh, you know, you, you, okay, you have that very uh, distinct understanding of, you know, each of the tribes and, uh, you know, what their roles were and what their positions were. So, so the, you know, the family of Levi here, Levi, so... What a what a turn of events to have him go from being of the family of the priesthood to he's a tax collector. That's the utmost enemy of Israel. Uh, you know, John the Baptist, descended from the tribe of Levi, rejects that, lives in the wilderness, comes, rebukes those Pharisees, those leaders, and those teachers, calling them uh, to repentance. Le- you know, Levi seeing the corruption perhaps uh just decides hey if you know our culture especially the levite priesthood is going to be corrupt why not go the full way why not become a tax collector why not enrich myself uh with you know if we're going to be a bunch of hypocrites let's just go all the way down the road of hypocrisy let's let's you know make ourselves incredibly wealthy in the process and, uh, you know, such an interesting thing. Come follow me. Immediate response. Okay. Uh, what an amazing example to have 
a life such as Levi, who's apparently so rejectant of his lineage and you know priesthood, working as a tax collector, but receives the invitation to be a, a devout follower of a rabbi, Jesus Christ, and to depart from that wealth. Right? This isn't just I'm flipping burgers somewhere and a you know growing preacher of fame says, "Hey." Come work in my business, and hey, that you know, I'll go do that. He departs from wealth to enter into poverty and a life of servitude. So you 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 have to know that the Lord had already been doing things in uh, Matthew's heart and Levi's heart. Uh, most of us know that because of what we were doing, right? You know, we we had a certain lifestyle, we had a certain way of conducting ourselves and we heard the call of the Lord say follow me and we put down whatever was in our hands and we began to follow Jesus Christ we we know uh, all the things that the Lord did beforehand that brought us to that eventuality of responding in obedience for Levi to have done that is really quite remarkable arose and followed him now it happened as he was dining in Levi's House that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. There were many, and they followed him. So he's got this great response that is taking place. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors? And sinners, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. A few things there. Um, previously, as Jesus has healed the man who was lowered down through the roof, um, the Religious leaders are saying in their hearts, uh, how could this man say that he has forgiven sins? No one can forgive sins except God. And the scripture tells us that Jesus, knowing what was in their hearts, here, right, it specifically says, hearing what they said. Okay? That's a clarification for us of Jesus' supernatural power. Because it doesn't, right, if it was a lie, if it was a fictitious made-up thing that he could read people's minds, then that would have been a perfect opportunity to do that same thing again. To say, knowing their thoughts, Jesus confronted. No, when Jesus heard what they were saying, he heard what they were saying, and he addressed the issue. When he knew what they were thinking, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you see Jesus confronts somebody like that, you know, saying, I know what you're thinking, and it becomes apparent. Later, you're going to say to Jesus, like, how did you know that? And he's going to say, I read their thoughts. You know, I know what they were thinking. And we see that elsewhere as Jesus talks about, you know, uh, you know Nathaniel, and he talks about uh, the others where he, he knows what they were experiencing before they arrived. He knows what they're going to experience after they leave. He knows what they're thinking in the moment. He can determine what's in their hearts. Jesus shows us several times, many times, 
uh, a level of supernatural insight. But when it's straight from human experience and understanding, the scripture declares that to us. That lends us credibility to the scriptures, that it isn't always trying to make fantastic claims. Where, where it is a supernatural thing, the scripture declares it as such. I, I think you understand what I'm trying to get across there. <clears throat> the issue here, two-part, I'm here to take care of people that are sick, physically sick, spiritually sick. I'm here to care for those that are sick. Secondly, uh, clarify again, that's Jesus' role, not always our role, right? Jesus can go hang out at the bar with the prostitutes, and he purifies that environment where that environment would contaminate us. And that's the position that these Pharisees are coming from. Right? They, own, they know their own nature. If I was hanging out in that place, I'd be getting drunk and you know, sleeping around. So surely Jesus must be doing that. Um, you know, that's what psychologists call project, projecting. <laughs> you project your failures onto someone else. Right? Jesus doesn't have that flaw. You know, he purifies the environment. Take it as a caution also. Right? Because there, there are people who take the opportunity to say, oh, well, I'm just here ministering, man. <laughs> no, you're not. <clears throat> you're taking opportunity. We talked about it this morning. Jesus didn't come to give us license to sin. He gave us liberty from sin. Right? You know, when you were a kid, you couldn't drive until you passed the test and somebody finally gave you a license and said, you're now legal to drive. Here you go. And that's the way a lot of people treat sin. You know, I became a Christian, and it's as though God showed up and by his grace just gave you a license and said, go ahead, kid, have a good time. That's not what the Lord does in our lives, right? Liberty is freedom from. We were imprisoned in it. And Jesus shows up with the keys and unlocks the doors and sends us on our way. Don't, don't make the mistake of following these people that are very prominent in the church today who, who teach that, no, Jesus has just given you freedom to go ahead and do those things. No, no, we were in bondage to them. And Jesus Christ broke into that prison and set us free and delivered us out. Don't, don't ever, you know, try to go back and find a place to live in one of those cells again. Let the Lord deliver you out of it. So I've, you know, the, it is the sick who need a physician. And uh, I've come here uh, to save the sinners, not the righteous people. Call them to repentance. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting when they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, as he gives this answer, I think it's important for us to look at the modern applications, right? Because there are people within Christianity that have this attitude like you have to always be just really bummed out. If, if, you're, if you're not having a bad time, then you're probably not a Christian. You know, you really, you really just need to walk around dragging your knuckles and feeling really terrible. Um, and, if, and if you do, if you're morbid enough, then maybe you're saved is their approach. 
And, uh, you know, Christianity is a joy-filled thing. The Lord uh, really has given us great cause uh, for uh, even, you know, jovial lightheartedness. Yeah, it's a serious, dark world out there. I get that. But guess what? We win. You know, <laughs> our, our team is, is uh, the victorious ones. And uh, regardless of how stupid politicians are, and crazy the world is and how upside down the media becomes, uh, we're still the winning team. We, we still make out like kings, literally, in, in the end. So, uh, you know, don't let it drag you down too far, right? you got to be serious. you got to be somber. But uh, there's great joy in Christ. There's, there's good, you know, there's good cause to enjoy a day like today where it was supposed to rain. And, uh, you know, turned out to be fairly nice. You know, it's, it's okay to do that. See, these guys come and they've got that mindset of, hey, hey, we're always fasting. So what's up with your guys? You know, they always seem to be celebrating. What's the issue? Jesus said to them, can the friend of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Listen. It's very different today than it was in the ancient world. The celebration at the wedding in the ancient world was the groom. Okay. Today, it's the bride. Uh, you know, We celebrate the bride, and there's Christianity that has caused that, which is a, a cool thing. But uh, in the day, it was all about the groom. And the point, every, everyone was into it that way. Uh, so, so, you know, think of, think of our modern wedding uh, today you would not want to show up at a wedding all in your you know best suit or whatever or you know, you're part of the wedding party and you've got a tuxedo on and you're going through all that difficulty and when you arrive somebody says uh, oh uh, yeah no no cake here today you know there's, there'll, there'll be no buffet there'll be no in fact we're just we're all going to be on gathering over there on the hardwood uh, to kneel down for the rest of the afternoon and, and pray. <laughs> you know, well, I, th I think I have other things to do, you know, saying I'll, I'll stay for the vows, but then I really, no reception? I, I don't know if I'm, I just, I'm pretty sure, I think I left the oven on. You know, I just, a number of things are going to cause you to say, I don't want to stay, right? Wedding's supposed to be celebration. You know, here, this is exactly what's saying is, that's not the mode we're in, guys. We're not. We're in the place of celebration. The Messiah has arrived. The King is here. We're all you've, you appreciate your religiosity, but um, you know Jesus is saying what we're about is the celebration of marriage and the fulfillment and the culmination of things. So the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. In those days, listen. Every single one of these men that are here uh, gave their lives. Uh, some of you immediately might have said, well, except for John. Oh, John went through a martyrdom. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I boiled in oil in an attempt to kill him. He miraculously survived that. You know, for those that want to argue about whether that was real or legitimate or not. Well, he was definitely exiled to Patmos, which was a death march, okay? Uh, the number of people 
who lived through Patmos w- w- could probably be you know counted in you know the low dozen or so. Uh, they would wake you in the dark. They would give you your tools and march you out in the pitch black under torchlight to the mines where you would labor intensely, breaking rock, all move, breaking and moving rock all day. Very little to eat, very little water, if any, some days just water, no food, until it was pitch black again and they would march you back to your sleeping quarters. Or sometimes, weather permitting, they would have them hunker right there around campfires and sleep in the open and wake them before dawn and begin the process again. And when you dropped dead, (laughs) just bury you quick someplace right there and put somebody else in your slot of the chains. It was brutal. El, extremely elderly man uh, put under those conditions. They all suffered tremendously for the cause of Christ. Dragged to death behind chariots, pitched off from walls, skewered on halibuts. I mean, they just filleted alive. Horrible. Horrible. Yeah, they're celebrating right now. Yeah. You know, their hands are in the air and they're filled with joy, but they are going to have to live this faith out in a way that none of these men had to experience to the same degree that those 12 do. So no one sews a piece of unshrucken cloth on an old garment or else the new piece pulls away from the old. And this is his moving right into illustration and it tears, the tear is made worse. No one puts New wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled, the wineskins are ruined, but new wine must be put into new wineskins. Yeah, yeah, you got the old method, you got the old ways, guys. And we appreciate, again, your religion and all you've done. The Pharisees, as much as we like to criticize them when we read the New Testament, uh, they literally sacrificed their lives in droves to protect and preserve God's word. They, they, there was at least one occasion where Rome was going to um, conquer and destroy and burn uh, the scrolls and the faith and all that they were entailed with, and they actually launched a decoy party with scrolls visible, riding at high rates of speed away from the Romans, and the Romans put chase to them to capture them, kill them, and burn the scrolls, while simultaneously another group of them snuck away to the south with the actual scrolls to preserve the word of God. They were very, very serious uh, about the faith, about the religion, and about the word. And 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 honestly, we have a great deal of debt uh, to them. Okay, so But the old is being replaced with the new. You know, the, the fasting is being replaced with the celebrating. And really, it's the new you want to preserve, right? You know, the sewing of a patch upon the old, you know, sounds stoic and nostalgic and noble, right? Oh, don't let this thing deteriorate. You know, patch it up. Keep it together. Well, Christ has come with the superior. Right? Very first miracle, change the water into wine. And and there you get that explanation of Jesus' whole ministry, where the old is inferior 
to the new. What has come second is better than what had previously been established. So here, as everybody's all you know, looking at, and, and right, the church is, uh, think about this for just a moment. Maybe I'm just being a little too abstract, but you, know, you have a group within the church. It's a little bit fading now, but the emergent church movement. Oh, look, look back. Look, look at the icons. Look at the statues. Look at the old ways. Look at the liturgy. And we should, we should go back to those things. We should restore. We should rebuild these old things. No, there's a reason that the church did away with them. They're old. They're worn out. They have been replaced with the superior. We need to focus ourselves upon what Christ is doing now and move forward with these things. And there was great corruption in those things that needed to be done away with. Coming into church and going to the prayer station and lighting a candle and praying to an icon, okay, is, is idolatry. Only Christ can hear your prayers. You know, much as you loved your dog, St. Bernard is not going to help you get it back. Jesus might, if you pray to him, you need to make sure your focus is in the proper place, not upon the old methods of, boy, I like the old hymns. You guys like the old hymns? I really, I grew up with them, and I really like the old hymns. Um, you know, Isaac Watts, I'm particularly fascinated with a lot of what he's done. I like that stuff. But <clears throat> I also know that a lot of what the church shed from those time periods, it's good that we shed those things. And that there's an open honesty in the faith today and a progress and a maturity and a growth. So looking forward to rather than looking back here, Jesus is saying to them, we're moving forward, fellas. <laughs> the past is gone and, and, we, and we need to move on to what the Lord is creating now. Verse 23, now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they, as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of the grain. Now, this was allowed within the Levitical law. Totally commonplace to do this. If you're in a vineyard, if you're in an orchard, if you're in a grain field at this time, in this culture of Israel, you could strip the grain. Right? You could literally grab handfuls and strip the grain off and eat it or fruit and eat it. You could take one down and eat it and hand your friend one and, and have uh, you know, a few peaches, a few pears as you moved through the field. Uh, it's gleaning from the harvest, totally allowed by the law. And no one looked down their noses. If you looked out in your field and there was people moving through your field and eating uh, from your orchard, no one thought twice about that. You might even think uh, something along the lines of, I hope they're enjoying that. And I, and I hope they share with people how good they think it is so that they'll buy my stock when I get it to market. Uh, so, so it was a common cultural. Thing. Now, if they look out and you've got your wagon out there and some barrels and you're filling you know, up your load, that's thievery, and it's not allowed. But gleaning of the harvest as you pass through the field, totally, completely acceptable, understandable, allowed. So they're stripping the grain off the heads of the stalk. If your translation says corn, it's wheat. It's the corn of the wheat. If you get an opportunity to look at the head 
of wheat. It looks just like a miniature corn stock, like a, you know, a, a corn on the cob. It's it's constructed in a very similar way. So they refer to the head as the corn of the wheat. They would strip that off the top. They would rub it really vigorously in their hands to get all the husk and the shell off, and then just blow. And sometimes they would sort it back and forth in their hands as they blew all that chaff off, and then pop it in your mouth. Kind of bland, nutty, and it breaks down super slow. It gets gummy as you chew, and you have to work on it quite a bit. Uh, so it's a slow chew. It's a slow process, uh, but it's quite filling. Uh, so if you did this with many handfuls of wheat as you were passing through the field in a day, uh, this is going to sustain you for a while. They're hungry and they're gleaning of the harvest. Totally acceptable. It's a very strange picture to me because you read that and then it says, and the Pharisees said to him, look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Where'd the Pharisees come from? You know what I'm saying? Like, they're just cruising through the field, stripping grains, and boying up pop the puppets, and, you know, hey! You know, they're just, they're, they're, look, they think this is wrong. They're not going to do it, so why are they in the field? It's a very strange thing uh, to me uh, that, that they're doing this. Even if they're following Jesus, right? Like, oh, he's a popular rabbi, and so we'll go check him out. The fact that they react this way tells you what they think of Jesus. Right? So why are you following? Whoa. You know, you already have a certain level of disagreement. Listen, it may sound very odd to you, like, oh, that's a then thing. Uh, I just had a conversation uh, with a fellow minister today who... Um, <clears throat> He, we were talking. He called me up. We were talking about other things, and he said, "Hey, do you know this certain individual?" And I said, uh, "Yeah, I, I do." He said, "It's weird. Um, he just showed up at our church uh, today, and I, a whole bunch of things went through my mind." And uh, he says, uh, "I tried to speak to him, and uh, he just was like super negative." I said, "Really?" And so, how did you know? How did it all go? He said, "Well, I, I asked him, you know, why he was here and what he was doing." And he told me that he's he's now going to our church. And again, a whole bunch of things went through my mind. And uh, this fellow minister summarized, yeah, I get the sense that, that's, that that negative aspect is how it's always going to be. And I, all I could say was, yeah, probably. You know, just everywhere he goes, it's just always, why is that going on? Why is that going on? Why, why is that going on? Just negative 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 why why are you in the body of christ if that's all you're going to do you know why are we praying and fasting why aren't we this what's that why do you do that why is that where's the joy of christ you know were you not once in bondage to sin i know you were <laughs> and christ has delivered you and now you find that your role within the body of christ is to just lurk around and wait for the moment where you can go, hey, <laughs> and correct everybody? How, where's the joy of Christ in that? What is going on in your poor heart? You know, find the love of the Lord. You know, find the nourishment. Find the freedom to 
you know, consume what you need, what your, what's going to sustain you and, and fill you, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? Uh, they, they, you guys have seen them. Maybe, I hope, maybe you're not. Maybe you're the blessed few that haven't run into these discerning ministries. You know, they're all over the Internet now, you know? Uh, you know, they'll, they'll ask the question, are you a follower of pastor so-and-so? You know, are you aware that he's a false teacher? And they just go through all this garbage of, you know, why they think their position is better than pastor so-and-so. I mean, there are times to point out the falsehoods, right? But, but you got Pharisees that just lurk in the wheat fields <laughs> and pop up at the most inopportune moments to point out how what you're doing must be wrong. They're convinced of it. You know, why are they convinced of it? Not because of the word of God, right? Because this whole thing that they're going to complain about, it all comes from the Mishnah and the tradition and all that they've developed. You know, you couldn't travel more than a Sabbath day's journey on the Sabbath day. But if you really wanted to, well, you could tie a rope to your house. And you could run it all the way out there, you know, to what is normally a Sabbath day's journey. And because that's attached to your house, well, that's your house. The end of that rope is uh, your house. So you can walk all the way out to the end of that rope. And then from there, you can travel a Sabbath day's journey, you know. But you couldn't wear your false teeth because that's carrying a burden, you know. Women weren't allowed to look in the mirror on the Sabbath. Because they might notice a gray hair and feel compelled to pluck it out. And then that's harvesting, you know, so can't look in the mirror on the Sabbath. Can't pick, can't pick up a bale of hay to feed your ox. But clearly you need to pick up a spoon in order to eat so you could pick up a spoon. So put your spoon on top of your bale of hay and then you could pick up your hay because you're just moving your spoon after all. The nonsense, right? All of these rules, all, and that, I mean, you could just go on and on. Uh, Flavius Josephus, not Flavius Josephus. Um, I forget the Jewish writer. Um, I'll think of it in a minute. But, you know, there are whole books written on all of these rules and regulations uh, of, of what you can do, what you cannot do. Jesus is going to say here in just a minute, look, the Sabbath was given to man as a rest, not a burden. God's intention wasn't that you'd be overwhelmed with the Sabbath, it's that you'd be freed by it so that you could rest in the Sabbath. You know, this is not, look, this is not lawful to be done on the Sabbath. So he said to them, verse 25, have you never read what David did when he was in need and in hunger and those with him, he's taking this from first Samuel chapter 21 uh, verses one through six. And he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest and ate the showbread. All right. That, that, all, that belonged to God. And, and, and they ate of the showbread, which was, wasn't supposed to be eaten by any commoner, uh, which was not lawful <coughs> to eat except for the priest, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath is made for man and man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. And that was just, 
I mean, he hit the plunger on that. The Son of Man, pointing to himself, referring to me, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Their heads just exploded with this. Jesus, you are the Lord of the Sabbath? Listen, <clears throat> I, I love these dear people in the Seventh-day Adventist movement and the, the Seventh-day Baptist, which is even less well-known than the, the Seventh-day Adventist. But um, it's, it's not Christianity. It's a form of legalism. You know, I've met a few who, by their own words, I think maybe they are, in fact, Christians, because they are relying upon the grace of God. But more often, the ones that I've talked to, and it's weird, um, and, I, and I hate to say it this way, but I spent a bunch of time stumbling around in cults when I first came to know the Lord. It took some time with Jehovah's Witnesses and later the Mormons and went through all this junk and uh, Seventh-day Adventism and all this stuff. And, you know, the the, the Seventh-day, the Mormons, uh, continuously, they make that presentation. I think I mentioned this last week. They'll They'll say, we're Christians. You know, you listen to Glenn Beck and he's like, I am a Christian. And, and he'll even talk about, well, you know, what is salvation? He'll go through this whole big thing. So, so turn the tables around on them. They say, I'm a Mormon and I am a Christian. And you say, okay, great. You say that, I don't believe you, but okay, let's, let's run with that concept for just a second. You say you're a Mormon and thereby you are a Christian. I say I am a Christian. Am I thereby a Mormon? And they will immediately lock right up because they, I am not. And they will insist I am not. So they're, they're saying it's interchangeable, and it's not interchangeable. Okay, So you always get that front-end presentation like, we're the same. But then you get into the private conversations, and they'll let the truth out of, oh, we're not really the same. You, you, know, you, you want to get saved, you've got to become one of us, is what they're saying. Jehovah's Witnesses do the same thing. They, they try to play all these similarities, but in the end... You got to be a member of the Watchtower Society in order to be saved according to their standard. Seventh day Adventists will say, We're, I'm Christian, you're Christian. Same thing. Then why do they still, to this day, as an organization, publish a booklet referred to as the Mark of the Beast? Okay, in the booklet, it says that if you worship on Sunday, that is the Mark of the Beast and you're going to hell. So, so the doctrinal position of the organization is if you go to church on Sunday, you are not saved and you are going to hell. So as much as I love them, okay, that doctrine is false. That is completely false. And, you know, within this whole process, uh, Jesus is saying, look, Sabbath was intended for you to give you rest. The early church leaders... And, and if that confuses you, I always try to clarify, forgive me. Um, you know, some people will refer to the early church fathers, okay? That comes from, again, the Roman Catholic institution, not the church, the Roman Catholic institution, right? We didn't call no man on earth your father, your spiritual father. They were the early church leaders. I'll give them that, 100%. They openly stated we do not honor the Sabbath. That, that is, that's a shockwave for people within Seventh-day Adventism and otherwise. Okay, 
they openly stated, no, 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 no. That was the old covenant, and it was honoring the Sabbath of creation. We are the people of the new creation who are honoring the day of our Lord on which he rose. So they abandoned. They, you know, In the very beginning, there was some Saturday worship and Sunday worship, but right away the church abandoned Saturday worship and they were solely focused on Sunday, worshiping the Lord on the first day of the week. You know, within this contract here, the people that want to take and go back to, uh, you know, Sabbath worship and those things, the first thing I say, you want to go back to the law, first thing you need to consider is you need to start by going back to a, a six-day work week. And all of them are like, no, I'm not interested in that. You know what I'm saying? Because that's how it was. You worked six days and you had one day off to worship the Lord and to rest. So if, you, if you're saying, oh, I'm way more advanced than everybody else because I don't eat bacon and I don't drink coffee and I worship on Saturday. Do you work six days a week? Right? You're going to keep the whole law because if you're going to break it at one point, then you're breaking the whole thing. So find the freedom is, is really what I'm rambling around here about you guys is Christ has given us rest. And, and we don't need to get all tangled up in any of that nonsense. Here, Jesus is saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 1 of chapter 3, he entered the synagogue again, right? Uh, drawing the point to Jesus isn't anti-religion. He's not anti-establishment. He's not anti-corporate worship at all. He's staying right to the form. He's staying right to the culture. He's, he's there with them on Saturday to worship. He entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely. They, the religious leaders, watched him, Jesus, very closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Now, you remember Jesus saying, don't be like uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, because, uh, you know, woe unto them. They, they love the best seats in the synagogues. Well, the best seats in the synagogues isn't just like, oh, let's try to get to the front row. Uh, you can see better from there. Okay, that's not what that was. Best seats in the synagogue was this seat belongs to Rabbi so-and-so. And he sits in that seat and he watches the person who's going to read from the scroll very carefully to make sure that as that individual reads, he puts the comma in the right place, that he starts with the right emphasis, that he ends with the right trail off, that he's constantly there. And, and they would correct them. Okay, so, so they would sit in the best seats, meaning the best position to criticize what was being presented okay and they they didn't always bring the criticism but the point was anyone who was asked to read of the scrolls was like swallow hard and then carefully <laughs> right because you got a critic sitting right there 
who's going to just light you up if, if you do not do this right. So now there's a man with a withered hand. He wouldn't normally be accepted into the synagogue, right? He's thought to be cursed by God. The, the withering that's spoken of here was either from disease or injury. Think about the occasions. You guys are studied enough to remember the occasions where people were sick or towers fell on them. Or, and, and the questions are raised like, who, who sinned that that terrible thing happened, Right. Was it him? Was it his parents? Was it, you know, what, who did the wrong that this terrible thing occurred? This man comes in with a withered hand. You know, everybody is, is looking down their nose going, is clearly this guy's got hidden sin in his life. There's no way God would allow that to happen to him unless he were a terrible person. And they put him up front. Oh, wait a minute. The critics sit up front. Right? How did he get himself a seat up front? These guys have set him there. Now, oh, glad you showed up today. Why don't you come in here and sit with us? Right up front? Right up front? You know what I'm saying? And sit right? Yes. We want you front and center. Why? Because it just tells us they're going to watch. Think about how selfish and cruel this is, you guys. This is this is so cruel. This this is what their religion does in this whole process. It's a hideous thing. You know, step forward, Jesus says. You know this guy is thinking, look, I'm criticized all the time. And I was dragged in here to the front row today, and I'm really not wanting to be put on display at the moment. Thank you very much. But there's also that thing that's probably in his mind of, I really hope this guy heals me. This guy has been casting out demons, restoring lepers. I wonder if this is going to, you know, have you had those moments? They're rare in life, right? But you know you're about to receive the gift or the prize, but there's a small portion that says, I don't know if I'm going to. And you're kind of shaky, and you're nervous, and you're hopeful. You're 99% sure this is going to turn out good, but this could also turn out bad. This guy is being shoved into this position. I wonder how comforting Jesus' eyes were. You know, to just look at him and say, you can trust me, man. It's going to be all right. You know, yeah, I get what everybody else is doing to you, but. Just step up here with me for a minute. That must have been a really cool moment right there to have that all unfold. I really appreciate Jesus and his kindness. Right? Step forward. He said to them, Jesus, to the religious leaders, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Listen, you guys. I need to let the cat out of the bag and zip around the subject for just a minute here because one, two, three, these guys are going to be conspiring to kill Jesus. Before we get out of this passage, these guys are going to cluster together and go, how can we kill him? Okay, so 
is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or kill? Right? Look right straight through their wicked hearts and go, I know what you guys are all about. I love the way that not only uh, you know Jesus does this, but the scripture reveals it to us to say, this is Jesus going, I know what this whole scene is about. I know the conversation you're going to be having before the hour is up. You know, is it lawful for me? You know, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. I imagine they would. Jerks. When he had looked around at them with anger, Jesus gets angry. Oh, hey, wait a minute. Anger is not sinful, right? We live in this pansy world. That acts like if you get angry, you're clearly the devil himself. And now listen, people have problem with anger. We get that, right? You know, flare off, do terrible things, break dishes, scream and yell. All of that's it's actually criminal, right? You're not allowed to do that stuff. It's wrong. It's sinful. You, you can literally get arrested for that. It's non-Christian. But I'll tell you what. You harm one of my children or my grandchildren, and you're going to see righteous indignation. And it may, it may be the very last thing you see. Seriously. Anger is right and correct. And, and listen, I'll tell you what, lack of anger in our culture is incredibly sinful. There, there are atrocities going on all around us that people are not only tolerating but promoting. And it's outrageous. It's outrageous that Target, as I talked about recently, is promoting transgenders using their bathrooms and their changing rooms. It is outrageous that repeatedly women and children have been assaulted in those bathrooms and in those changing rooms. And we're not hearing a blessed thing about it in the media. Target is inviting them. And no, 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 no. I mean literally sending out invitations to the, the LBGTQ communities and saying, come use our bathrooms and our changing rooms. They're inviting the perverts into where our most vulnerable are. That, that requires anger. I will not purchase a blinking thing from Target online, in their stores. I have nothing to do with them whatsoever because of that. Anger is needed, right? Paul himself said, be angry and sin not, right? Be angry and sin not, promoting the concept of being angry. Now, here, here's the thing, you guys. A man that previously clearly struggled with anger. He killed Stephen. He, he was a man, right? So he had to learn that balance from the Lord himself of how do I get angry properly and not sin in the process so so we do need to have a fiery indignation the passive approach that our culture is taking is a big part of why our culture is swirling down the toilet currently we, we need to have an aggression you know in our school systems in our communities around and public to stand up and say what you are doing is wrong 
to address people the way they need to be addressed. Jesus looked around at them and with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. And I bet most of it was to do with what they were doing to that poor man in the moment. I bet very little of it was to do with what they were going to do to him. Right? Because it was his plan to die as the, the substitutionary atonement. So he wasn't all that fired up about that. Right? We probably would be, you know, you know, all filled with anger over our own cause. I, I bet you, you know, more than anything, Jesus was angry over how they were treating this poor man in, in their midst. Angered over the hardness of their hearts. He said to them, stretch out your hand. Now listen, <clears throat> there's two different actions. And there's a very complex way of describing the Greek language here. But what Jesus asks him to do is basically it goes something like this. Do what you can to stretch out your withered hand. Think about that, right? His hand is curled and crippled and gnarled. And, and he's saying to him, to the degree you can stretch out your hand, do that, right? And then when we read that Jesus makes it whole, that's the active part where Jesus makes it whole. So um, don't approach your need for Jesus' touch and Jesus' healing with the concept of, I need to heal myself. You need to respond to what Jesus is telling you to do and go the distance Jesus is telling you to go. But he's going to be the one who completes the fulfillment of the thing, right? So reach out your hand. Stretch out that. With, you know this guy's hiding this hand, right? He's in a culture that shames him for his inability. He's probably gotten used to posturing a very particular way and keeping that draped under his cloak and just trying to look as presentable as possible and Jesus is saying I want you to just make it public man stick it right out just stick out with that withered hand do the passive side of take it as far as you can and then let me do the rest is what he's saying stretch out your hand he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other it, it literally reads that as he did the passive part, then the active part took place in it. You know, how, what, what, did it, what would that be like for, you know, was that withered old gnarled up hand like snapping and popping and cracking as it came out there? And now it's completely whole? That's astonishing, right? Think of the occasion where, Peter comes off and swings and takes Malchus's ear off with a sword. And Jesus, oh, you know, he puts it back on. We all know the story, but like ear just flew through the air in a crowd of more than 600 men, by the way. Right. Where is the ear now in the darkness? Right. Because they've come with torchlight. Probably like, hey, step back. Don't step on it. You know what I'm saying? And like, bring the torch up here. Oh, darn it. You know, and it's all covered in grass. And you got to, you know, 
<laughs> Put that back on. Passive part combined with the active part. I, uh, I've been healed by the Lord. I still have things I'm praying the Lord would heal me of. But there's something that the Lord has done that I've noticed is uh, he's left small mars and scars in place so that I always have the assurance I used to be very sick. And I can see it. I can see where he healed me. I wonder if this man had full functional capability, but there were visible elements of, I used to be a crippled man and Christ. I wonder if he put Malchus's ear on just slightly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That did fly right off. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> huh? Do you have things in your life that you're like, I wish this was perfect. Maybe Christ left that just slightly out of kilter. So you don't get all full of yourself. And you can also say to somebody, hey, look at the scar. <laughs> let, me, let me show you what Christ did for me. It's a gracious thing that the Lord does in this moment. Restored as whole as the other. As whole as the other. Listen. We hear that in other cases where Jesus heals the lame and the halt. Lame, crippled, physically. Halt, missing. Show up, you know, with fingers gone from leprosy. And boink, boink, boink. You've got them all back. Jesus is capable of doing things you would never imagine. Completely impossible. Completely impossible. And it's good that we look all the way to those things. What does he want to do? So, in the process, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Literally kill him. Literally kill him. You know, I want to assure us all, as we close that thought, right? Paul had to tell us that he had a massive ailment, and I won't even speculate tonight on what that was, but a massive ailment in his life. And he had prayed three times the Lord to remove it, and the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And the reason, Paul tells us, was so that he would not become prideful, because he had so many other blessings, because of, he actually says, the abundance of the revelation, right? Author of more than one-third of the New Testament, brilliant scholar, most educated man in his day, was kept humble with his malady, so that as he relied upon the Lord, people could see that humility in his life. So, you might need the Lord to heal you and pray. That the Lord does. And if he tells you to stretch out your hand, stretch out your hand. But if he says, my grace is sufficient for you, then pray two more times. <laughs> Very earnestly. And if he keeps you in that place, then trust him. 
trust him, that it's for his purposes through our humility, that we can just walk with him and experience his grace in our lives. Amen? Amen. So we'll pick up right where we left off next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray? I know. I know that whole thing, that whole snap, crackle, pop, right? Yes. Father, thank you so much for your word. Help us, Lord, to, to love your word, to read your word, to pray, to meditate, to be in fellowship, to be in prayer, to study, Lord, to use those things in the world and the community around us. Watch over us, keep us, bless us. Until we are together again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.